Welcome to Brown Bag Green Book. Today, our speaker is Stephanie Welch. She is the Director of Community Development and Planning with the Knox County Health Department. And today, she's leading our discussion of the book, Toward the Healthy City, People, Places, and the Politics of Urban Planning by Jason Corburn. Stephanie? Thank you, Abby, for that nice introduction. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. I'm really excited to be up here, but I'm nervous. And Mary Palm made it worse. Where is she? Oh, yeah. Yeah, right, 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 right. She said, all the people in the audience will be judging you, Stephanie. Harshly. Harshly judging you. I know that's not true. So I'm just really pleased to be here today. And I do want to acknowledge that there are some folks in the room who have much more expertise in the area of urban planning than do I. So to be up here talking about, you know, the central theme of this book is around urban planning and its effect on health, my area of expertise. But the urban planning focus, I hope that my planning friends will be forgiving of me and maybe correct some of my errors in the discussion period. So I'm going to start off with a question. In the U.S., we spend 15% of our gross domestic product on health care. This is the highest by far in the world. If you look at other industrialized nations, we certainly spend the highest amount per capita on health care compared with any other industrialized country. Yet, despite our technological advancements and our really state-of-the-art health care delivery system, can anybody make a guess as to where we rank as far as health outcomes? Okay, 37th, absolutely. Depends on the source you're looking at, but you know, it could be 29th. World Health Organization says 37th. So we have some issues to address. Why would that be that despite all of the resources that we put into the system, we don't achieve the outcomes that are being seen in some other places? One answer to that may be provided by some of the content in this book. This book seeks to explain how the planning and development of communities influences health. The author expands the definition of planning to include not only physical design of our communities, which is kind of traditionally how we view urban planning, zoning designations, and physical infrastructure, but his definition of planning also includes the social qualities of communities, the decision-making processes that lead to that physical infrastructure. The author also uses a definition of health that we use commonly in public health, but that may not be generally understood. Typically, when we think of health, we think of it as being either the presence or absence of a disease state. And when we're talking about health in the context of this book, we're talking about a complete state of health that includes physical health, as well as social, mental health, and the cultural factors that contribute to health status. So, Many of us who work in public health call these things the social determinants of health, so those underlying factors that influence the health outcomes that we see in individuals and in populations. And so, again, this book uses the context of the population when talking about health, and oftentimes we think of health as being a very individual thing. Neither definition is wrong, but I just wanted to kind of lay that out so that you know what I'm talking about when I talk about health. So the author is a professor in the Department of City and Regional Planning at the University of California, Berkeley. His expertise is in the area of urban planning. However, he kind of embedded himself in the field of public health over the course of a couple of years to create this book. 
there are some aspects of this book that to me read like a textbook. So it may not be something that everyone in the room just wants to go out and pick up and start reading. However, there are some great case studies in the book that we're going to discuss today that I think anyone would be really interested in. So I'm going to just share two stories to illustrate my personal and professional interest in planning, health, and community process. And so I'll start with my childhood. I grew up in a rural subdivision. It actually was government-subsidized housing, really. It was built where the land was cheap. It was kind of a cul-de-sac subdivision that was on what used to be agricultural land in the Northeast. And the good news about the place where I lived is that there were lots of kids and we played outside all the time and so I got lots of activity but it wasn't typically feasible for those of us who lived in this neighborhood to participate in extracurricular activities. I mean we were pretty far from the school and so most of the extracurricular activities occurred in town. Transportation was challenging, both parents worked. You, You get the picture, you've heard these kind of stories before. But when I turned 14 my family moved to town And it changed my life. It was a life-changing experience to be able to get around without parental driving, having to be involved. So I could walk to school. I could walk to church where my youth group was. There was a grocery store that I could walk to. It was life-changing as a 14-year-old to have that responsibility and independence. I didn't realize at the time that it also was good for my health. But, of course, now I do. And I also realized later on as I reflect back that every place that I've chosen to live since then has allowed me that same type of freedom. Now I have a car and I do get around by car but it's nice to have a choice and so I've made that choice for myself. So it interests me in how communities are designed and you can sort of make that connection. So I'm going to fast forward 10 years to my work in public health. And when I started out in public health at the Knox County Health Department, like most of public health, our organization approached health from a disease model. So when people got sick, we treated them, or we focused on preventing very specific diseases through kind of traditional health education types of frameworks. For example, my primary job responsibility as a nutrition educator was to provide education about eating more fruits and vegetables to reduce hypertension or reducing or controlling your carbohydrate intake to manage your diabetes. I did a lot of those kinds of classes. And one class that I provided, at the conclusion of the class, I had a woman who came up to me and she said, I really enjoyed this. However, it's going to be nearly impossible for me to follow your advice. I'm a single mother with two children. I live in the Lonsdale community. I don't have a car. The nearest grocery store is two miles away. The food options in my neighborhood are basically convenience stores, which, you know, we kind of know what's the types of foods that are offered there. Um, She worked at a factory within the neighborhood, and by the time the day was over, the whole prospect of getting the kids and getting them on the bus and taking the bus to the grocery store and carrying the groceries back... I mean, it's challenging, right? So she presented me with these challenges, and she also talked about some of the other challenges faced in her community around speeding traffic and blighted homes and scary dogs. And she wasn't being difficult. I mean, I clearly remember this this woman. But she faced some challenges in trying to implement the recommendations that I was trying to, to get her to implement based on the best evidence we have for health and healthy living. 
And is this resonating with anyone? Have you any of you experienced that? Okay. Uh, about this time, I was exposed to an area of practice that was focused on active living and healthy eating. And this gentleman named Mark Fenton, who's just a fireball guy who is an engineer, former marathon walker. And he has taken on this issue of designing communities to support people's ability to make a choice. We have to realize that people have to take personal responsibility for their healthy lifestyle behaviors. However, if we create a community that makes it so difficult for people to make that choice, we've kind of set ourselves up for failure. So his whole idea is design communities so people can make that healthy choice, make the healthy choice pretty easy. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. This is exactly what I have been thinking and kind of experiencing in my personal and professional life. And there's actually, people do this for work. That is pretty cool. So I've been really lucky. I've been able to sort of ride on that. He recommended that I go home to my community and I meet with local planners, which I did over beer. That was also his recommendation. And we've been working together ever since. I'm really fortunate to you know, call planners in this room my friends. So it's a good thing. Okay, so enough about that. Let's talk about the book. The book starts off with talking about some of the challenges and barriers in health planning. It provides some historical context. I'm going to spend quite a bit of time talking about the historical context because it's fascinating to me. So I'm going to subject you to it. And uh, then there are a few chapters that read like a textbook. I'm not going to subject you to that. But they provide kind of a framework of how to reframe the processes to move towards this healthy city. And then finally, there are three case studies from the San Francisco Bay Area. Now, I realize San Francisco Bay Area, you know, right? I can hear it in people's minds. San Francisco, of course. I think that the context in San Francisco is very different than from in East Tennessee. Not One's not better than the other. But it's just a different context. However, there are lessons to be learned from some of the work that they've done there that I'm going to try to pull out and share that might be applied. So we'll start with some of the challenges. The author provides some data that we also have here in East Tennessee that demonstrates significant and undisputable differences in health outcomes that are based on zip code, income, educational attainment, and race. We have this data for East Tennessee, too. The book focuses on the power dynamics, the processes, the systems, and the institutions that contribute to these health inequities. And then the case studies provide some examples of how to shift the power dynamics and the processes to achieve uh, improved health outcomes. The author really talks about some of the challenges around the complexity of this. It was hard for me to get my mind around. It's so much easier to think about... I mean, it's not even easy for those of you in the room room who work on things like sidewalks and bike lanes. Those aren't easy things to get in place. But it's easier to conceptualize that physical infrastructure. Put a sidewalk in, and it allows people to walk, right? Put a bike lane in, and it allows people to bike. Put a grocery store in, and it allows people to buy healthy food. That really is kind of the way when I started out thinking about this active living, healthy eating stuff, that was sort of the framework that I used in my own mind just because it's easy. And then when you start thinking about 
the social processes and the political processes and the power dynamics, not that just go into putting those pieces of infrastructure in place, but all of the decision-making processes that go into getting us to that point and how those play out in the utilization of those spaces or where those spaces are located, it's very, very complex. So he acknowledges that. So just for example, a quote from the book, healthy places ought to be understood as being doubly constructed. So there's the physical environment, and then there's the social environment that both of these things need to be considered. Unfortunately, in our society, we have overly emphasized the physical environment as influencing health, and we haven't really started pushing towards how do we explore that social, political, cultural piece that uh, plays into it. You know, power plays into this a lot. Who makes decisions? Who's affected both positively and negatively? And then what, what in the world do we do about it? Those are challenges, definitely. All right, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about the historical context. When you think about the history of planning, planning has been around as long as communities have been around. So, you know, figuring out what to do with waste or figuring out what not to do with waste, figuring out how to transport goods. I mean, all of those things have been a part of developing communities over time. And there have been people whose job has been to figure out how those systems work. So I'm going to kind of start with the early 1900s when there was a real turmoil and struggle in the planning profession. This was kind of the the inception of modern planning in the United States, and this is where the planners can correct me at the end. I'm just going to tell you what I read in the book. At the time, the struggle was, on the one hand, there were folks who were really trying to address social and health issues through planning, and then on the other end, there was a group that was really trying to address efficiency and the aesthetics of communities. And it was really a battle. In one corner, according to the author, there was a gentleman named Benjamin Clark Marsh. And he was kind of a hero to the author, you could tell. He worked to place social justice and human health as the primary mission of urban planning. Marsh saw a role for planning related to policies for employment opportunity, wages, opportunities to participate in social and political processes, and living conditions. He was a real social justice guy, so he was very interested in the process of planning and the social interactions that take place during that process. In the other corner, Frederick Law Olmsted, who is famous, his father was the guy who designed the New York City Central Park, right? planners yeah yeah so oh and chill howie park so right here bring it home thank you so olmstead advanced the idea that planning should be a physical type of thing so focus on the physical the aesthetics the efficiency and not the social justice that wasn't a role for planners so in the author's view both of these ideas are integrated into the current field of planning However, there's much more influence from the technocratic portion of the profession. That battle in the beginning, what he's saying in the book is that Olmsted and his colleagues sort of won that battle. So, the author acknowledges the significant roles that planning and public health played in decreasing death and disease rates. 
clean water projects, sanitation programs, milk pasteurization, food inspection, immunizations. But the impact of social programs also has a huge role. So, I mean, think about the FDR administration, all the social welfare programs. We saw measurable changes in health outcomes as a result of those social programs. So those things can't be ignored, but it's also very difficult scientifically to say, all right, this is the proportion of those health changes that comes from the physical design of communities versus the social programs. Really hard to parse that out scientifically. So the author goes on to describe some of the historical context that's led to what he sees as a crisis in urban planning and the gap in health outcomes, which may actually be getting worse. Those disparities between health outcomes may be getting worse. I'm just going to run through a couple of examples of sort of policy and planning things that have happened. These are probably familiar to many of you in the room. For instance, in the mid-20th century, several federal policies geared toward housing, slum removal, and highway construction had an impact on health. So these are policy and planning and community design decisions that directly impacted health outcomes. The Federal Housing Act mandated that new housing should be designed using cul-de-sacs and curvilinear streets. This is the design that sort of takes you away from the grid street pattern that's seen in a lot of urban cores and more toward you know, neighborhoods that you can drive into and ride around, but there's only one inlet and outlet. And, you know, some of the issue there is that it's really challenging to have interaction between neighborhoods when we create these very physically isolated spaces. So in addition to that, the Federal Housing Administration refused to insure mortgages for older homes and actually specifically rated black neighborhoods with the lowest score for their loans for the purposes of distributing federally subsidized mortgages. And this really is this redlining. You all have heard of this before. Again, this may be very familiar to you. Um, Until 1950, this was actually legal. And the Federal Housing Administration allowed for zoning and deed restrictions that barred people of color, barred people of color, and categorized people of color as undesirable and a nuisance. And since the private banking system used guidelines that were set up by FHA, or the Federal Housing Administration, not only was there a disinvestment of federal funds, since the private banking system was using those guidelines, there was a disinvestment of private funds into these um, neighborhoods as well. So the practices were outlawed in, in 1950, just in time for a wave of urban renewal in which slum neighborhoods were raised to remove blight And whole sections of communities were demolished and rebuilt with new modern structures. And um, I think that the Coliseum was one of those projects, correct? So neighborhoods were removed and the Coliseum was built. Residents were displaced and moved into public housing if it was available. And the cumulative impact of this is a fractured physical environment removing people from their physical environment, but then also the social and emotional ties that people have to their community. There are other health benefits that are lost when this type of thing happens. So if people are able to accumulate wealth in a home that they own, they're able to send their kids to college. 
being able to have that kind of accumulation of wealth sets you up for the potential to have better health later on by attending good schools, by having access to services, etc. So then in the 1960s, the Federal Highway Act perpetuated the widespread destruction of poor inner-city neighborhoods. And I wanted to read you this quote from um, the Atlantic Monthly. It's an article that was written by Robert Moses, who I believe was a planner. And the article was entitled Slums and City Planning. And it stated, this is a direct quote, there has to be modern roads and modern harbors, and somebody's got to build it. And in order to get things done and done properly, people must be inconvenienced who are in the way. So the people who were in the way and didn't have a whole lot of political clout tended to be, you know, people who were poor. I mean, again, this is just, this is not surprising, but it's distressing to put it all in one place. Um, In 1970s, there were policies of benign neglect, and these were federal policies that basically were used to guide the investment of federal block grant dollars into neighborhood development projects. The policies actually were called like benign neglect and planned shrinkage, and they perpetuated the removal of services such as libraries and fire protection by disinvesting money from communities that were categorized as sick neighborhoods or neighborhoods that were losing population or didn't have a whole lot of economic development going on, weren't providing a really strong tax base, those services were relocated to the suburbs where there was more economic activity going on. Grocery stores followed. So if there's a public service that's moved, like a library, then other services move too, like your grocery stores and other businesses. This sounds like an indictment of planning. Uh, I will tell you that public health wasn't doing too much better. That's my field. In public health, there was a move away from addressing the social aspects of health. We moved more toward focusing on things that were really important. And let me just tell you, some of the things that I've described, gosh, there were really smart people who thought a lot about these planning and policy decisions and really felt like they were beneficial. They thought this was benefiting, and there were benefits. I'm sure we could go through a list of them, but there were some people who benefited and some people who didn't. And so that's the part that maybe has been lost in this process. And so public health similarly focused on things that were actually improving community health, things like immunizations and food safety, safety nets for personal health care were things that public health was focusing on. However, it really moved us in the direction of focusing on diseases and how to either eradicate or specifically prevent diseases through a very narrow intervention. And it really didn't get us into the area of how do the social, economic, education factors play into these health outcomes. We, we moved away from that. The good news is that we are moving back towards it again. Both of us, I feel pretty strongly. 
So in the midst of all of this, both public health and planners created processes, very bureaucratic processes, that left the community behind. In planning, and again, I will allow the planners to correct me uh, when I'm done with this, but in planning, this really has been characterized by public meetings that are constrained by decisions that have already been made. So the decision's been made, and we have this process we have to go through to get public input. It's worse in public health, let me just tell you. We didn't have the public meetings. I mean, we've used data, and we look at the health statistics. Not anymore. I'm, things are changing. There's hope. But we look at the health statistics and say, okay, here's the problem. Let's go tell this community this is what their problem is. And it's very prescriptive. You know, here are the solutions. So not really sort of an engaged process. The first couple of chapters, pretty depressing. So don't worry, though, because the next couple of chapters would put you to sleep. (laughs) They basically focus on the frameworks and theories for changing the current system. It's kind of academic. It's important, and I'm not belittling the work that the author has done, because it, it... There were some aspects that were interesting, but in the few minutes that I have left, I would like to just briefly summarize the case studies that are presented in the last three chapters. The author spent a couple of years just very heavily involved with the San Francisco Public Health Department to create these case studies. The context is different from East Tennessee, but I think they're interesting, and we might be able to learn some things from them. So the first case study is surrounding the Bayview Hunters Point community of San Francisco, and it's around environmental justice. I'll just read a quick little quote here to describe the Bayview community to you. A quote from a community member, look around this place. We've got trucks, smokestacks, and toxic military land that no one wants. We ain't got one of those big supermarkets like y'all got in the suburbs. We've got lots of cheap meals. I go to Safeway to see what's on sale. Even if I did have the money to buy good food, like at them healthy food places, I don't have the time or energy to make it. You know, it's kind of tough when you work 12 or 13 hours a day and try to juggle everything else. So he's just kind of describing the neighborhood that they're in. And there were some concerning disease statistics that were coming out of this neighborhood around cancer and asthma and air quality. So the San Francisco Public Health Department went in to do a community assessment. And they had their assessment tools, and they went in, and they expected to get answers like, you know, people were concerned about the toxic, contaminated soil in their neighborhood. But instead, what they found out is the community was concerned about crime, unemployment, access to food, and housing conditions. And these were things that the health department was not necessarily prepared to address at that time. They could have ignored this. They could have, but thankfully, they didn't. They dove in. They had no idea what they were doing. There was not much guidance out there, but they provided staff time and resources to start things like food projects in the neighborhood that were also economic development projects. They engaged in a public policy informational campaign to support a living wage ordinance. The health department did this in in conjunction with the community members. They worked with the community, and they consulted experts from around the world to create a framework for their work to move forward. So just real quickly. So some of the things that were developed in the health department's strategic plan, living wage, adequate supply of child care, improved public transportation. So these were in the health department's strategic plan 
after engaging with the community at this level. After the health department began engaging with the community in this manner, and they really listened and changed their practice based on what they were hearing, they became a resource for the community. There were some housing activists who engaged with the San Francisco Health Department and wanted the Health Department to weigh in on a controversial development project that would demolish rent-controlled housing to build market-rate condos. And this was during the time of the Silicon Valley boom, so there were just tremendous pressures in San Francisco around housing. Again, we have a very different context in East Tennessee, but just interesting that once that engagement happened, the community came right back and said, hey, we have something else we want you to look at. So the San Francisco Public Health Department agreed to conduct a health impact assessment on the project. And on 136, a health impact assessment, it's used by health environmental planners in other places around the world. It's fairly new in the United States. And it developed from a concern that non-health-specific policies were having a negative impact on human health. So the idea is to integrate into policy and planning decisions some health indicators to measure the impact of the project. They worked with the community over many, many meetings to develop this health impact assessment tool. Basically, what they ended up coming out with is that inadequate and unaffordable housing can force residents into substandard structures, increasing the likelihood of respiratory infections and ear infections, and they had some quantifiable data to sort of back this up. Some of the other things that they found, substandard housing can increase pest infestations, which leads to the use of toxic insecticides that contribute to low birth weight babies. There were many, many examples of the things that could happen, the health, the potential health impacts of this development project. And it, they even got into things around, you know, the loss of the social interaction and how that affects people's stress levels and what that does to their immune system. Um, it was quite, quite comprehensive. And unfortunately, though, they never engaged the planning department. They never went to see Mark Fenton, and he never told them, bring your planner out for beer. The planning department was really resentful that the health department was all of a sudden getting engaged with this stuff. They were, like, treading on my soil kind of thing. The community organizing aspect of this was really critical, though. So the planning department didn't necessarily adopt the health impact assessment into making changes to their recommendations. However, because the community was so organized, they pressured the developer to agree to include affordable units in the housing project that was eventually developed. So now you've got these engaged community members. They see that the health department is interested in helping them and really listening to them. They actually utilize the resources of the health department to help wage a battle that they think is important. The health department learns some lessons. They start engaging with the planning department. Then there is a community organization that is kind of formed kind of as a result of this and other efforts in the community. And the community organization, because they were so concerned about this affordable housing issue and the development pressures, they developed a zoning and land use plan called the People's Plan. And it was endorsed by thousands of residents. 
The planning department, unfortunately, did not acknowledge the people's plan. They decided instead to launch their own planning process, which created some tension. However, the San Francisco Public Health Department was asked to get involved, and they served as a mediator between the two. They helped facilitate a community-based process with all of the stakeholders engaged. It turned out to be huge. It was called the Eastern Neighborhoods Community Health Impact Assessment. It did not replace the planning department's process. That was the agreement. The planning department would move forward with their planning process, but the health impact assessment would be a complement to that. So the process involved creating some guiding principles, some common elements around inclusion, around health indicators, social justice issues, and they came out with a healthy city vision. And eventually, they actually developed a measurement tool that they call the Healthy Development Measurement Tool to provide quantifiable measurements for things like public safety, housing issues, and access to services that could be used to screen potential development. So that was their tangible outcome. In the meanwhile, there was a lot of tension throughout the process that's really quite interesting to read in the book. I enjoyed that. So, oh, this happens other places, too. There are tensions everywhere. So that was, that was good, and it talked about kind of how they resolved some of those. But the big take-home is that just by engaging with the community, not only did it redefine the health department's mission, but then there are some quotes from the planners at the end who were really excited to have been exposed to this whole new idea of engaging with the community. I'm going to end by quickly saying that we are really fortunate in our community to have a planning department that's already thinking about these things. So if you're not familiar with Plan East Tennessee, it's a regional planning process that is being led by the Metropolitan Planning Commission, the Transportation Planning Organization, and the city of Knoxville is sort of facilitating the fiscal uh, management end of that. And the intention of that process truly is to engage the community in deciding outcomes for the future of our region, creating that vision, how are we going to get there. The thing that was really clear to me in this is that the work that the health department did and there were other organizations involved really built the capacity of the community to take action in the future. They were providing input, but they were then taking things into their own hands and making things happen. And I thought that was pretty exciting and kind of, you know, a take-home for me. So I just wanted to leave you with that and see if you have any thoughts about that and whether that's happening in our community or how we can do it. One thing I did neglect to say, because I so highly of planners. I'm like, the planners are doing great things. The health department is too. So I just want to say that as a representative of the health department, I forget to tell people all the great work we're doing just within the past couple of years to really work at the neighborhood level to engage communities in determining their own future and the the health of their, their neighborhoods. And I can talk more about that, but I wanted to just let you know some of what you've heard is exciting to me because we're starting to do the same kind of work here. I wanted to say that I, as an architect and planner, I'm delighted you took on the book. I think it's a great subject for this forum. But uh, one of the things that uh, occurred to me uh, recently is in hearing more about the necessity for walkable communities, mm-hmm. uh, the major problem of obesity that we have mm-hmm. in our society. And I welcome the fact uh, that the health professionals were getting involved in that issue and were giving us actually more ammunition 
and, and a more compelling rationale mm -hmm. for making neighborhoods walkable that probably never would have been in the first place. And I wondered, you know, if, if you're consciously advocating that and how, how, you're, how you're doing that. Yes, we're involved on several levels with that, with walkable communities in particular. So the health department leads a coalition called Safe Routes to School, which is really focused on creating safe pathways for children to walk to and from school. We have worked with the community to establish a walking school bus in the Lonsdale neighborhood, working with Inskip to you know, do some traffic calming in that neighborhood. We're also kind of involved at a broader level with both planners and with our elected officials in talking about how can we prioritize this built environment issue around sidewalks, bike lanes, sort of active infrastructure. Absolutely. So I guess what I'm advocating for, or maybe what this book is advocating for, is how do we make sure that those resources for walkable, active communities are, are available to everyone? And what are the processes we're using to engage communities in making decisions about, about that infrastructure. I know a little bit about the safe walks to school because I have a friend who's done this for years in Boston, and I'd just like to point out that this is the kind of thing that's going to be cut. Um, these grants, this is all federal money. This is not local money. Just be aware, this, the community is going to have to start paying or doing it for free or organizing volunteers for these, these kinds of initiatives. Mm-hmm. A case for community involvement, for sure. Yeah. Planners plan. Planners build. They didn't go to school all that time to decide not to do a project. Mm -hmm. So as soon as they're involved, you're already up against the wall. It's going to happen. And um, the books are really interesting because it references several studies that bear that out. And mm -hmm. as you were saying, a lot of the decisions are already made by the time they get to the table. But... I kind of felt the book has got a utopian view that a lot of these problems can be solved. And um, I think it failed to look at some of the emerging data. For instance, San Francisco wants to put bike paths in. And so they have been challenged very successfully for decades now by community activists to stop that, putting in bike trails. This from a man who has never owned a car who relies on a bike, but he acknowledges that if you take all of this space on the streets and dedicate it to low-use bike lanes, you then actually compound traffic problems. You don't solve them. And, um, and then other studies that show as you put in subways and better transportation and you open up poor neighborhoods, mm -hmm. then you export the crime problem and so you have several places now where subways have come online near outlying malls, and now they close those stations at night because of the huge amount of problems that are imported into the commercial districts. Mm -hmm. So I think that without looking at some of those underlying things a little better, you know, and certainly as you close public housing and you start moving people into Section 8 across the city, then crime rates begin to increase in those locations. So I think there's a, a little bit of a utopianism in the book that's not warranted because there's not really a look at what are the real root underlying causes. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. until you solve those, just redistributing or 
making a prettier streetscape doesn't necessarily help it. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that was interesting. Hmm. So I guess I, I guess the way that I read the book, I don't disagree with you. I thought it was a little utopian too. Berkeley, California seems like utopia sometimes, apparently. But but um, I guess what I was reading is that the author was suggesting that by engaging in com- a real community process where, where all viewpoints are expressed and there's a process for coming to decisions around those viewpoints and there's the capacity in the community to be engaged with that, that the kinds of things that you've just raised would actually come up and be incorporated into that decision-making. So I felt like there was a lot more in here than just talking about the physical infrastructure. And actually, I don't think he talked much about the physical infrastructure. It was mostly about the processes and social interactions that lead to the communities we live in. I was curious if uh, the Knoxville area is doing any health impact studies currently. We have piloted a health impact assessment on community gardening efforts in Lonsdale a couple of years ago. And that was more just sort of how do we learn how to do this. And we're currently working with the Metropolitan Planning Commission and other community members to look at how to develop a health impact assessment framework for other projects that are going on in our community. So we're just starting to get into figuring out how to use it right now. So if it's something that you're interested in, let me know. We'll get you involved. Okay? You've been listening to a podcast of the Knox County Public Library. To find our other episodes, please visit our website at knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G.